0: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you could join us. Today we have two guests, David Hansen and Edwin Marty. They are co-authors of a book that I really, really enjoyed. It's called Breaking Through Concrete, Building an Urban Farm Revival. And it's beautifully written. They're both writers. And so the the storyline and the text is thoroughly enjoyable, but David's brother, Michael, is also an outstanding photographer, so the pictures that are involved in the book are also just really, really great. I mean, I it's a coffee table book as far as I'm concerned, so I'm so excited to have them on. We're going to go through several examples that they found as they did a nationwide tour of 12 different cities and the urban farm projects that were in those cities. I mean, talk about some of the lessons learned, talk about what's going on in terms of this revival of Urban Farming. And guys, I'm so glad that you could both join us. Welcome to Go Green Radio.
2: Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, I'd love for you to tell us about your biofuel bus ride across America. The video that I've seen is kind of funny. And uh, I'm also interested in how you chose the urban farm projects that you ended up including in your book. So give us give us some background on, on the tour and the chosen sites.
3: Well, Edwin and I have been seeing Urban Farms Around the country for for years, and and we were friends and colleagues in Birmingham. And Edwin had started his farm there years before, so we were kind of keeping a tally informally about of of what was going on with urban farms. And and eventually, we as being writers, we wanted to celebrate those uh, and what we saw as a movement in a book. And so we sat down and we just kind of came up with a list of all the ways that urban farms kind of manifest themselves and the things that they do within communities beyond just growing food. So uh, it all kind of started with that, like let's tell the big picture story of what urban farms do and kind of inform people about that. So we made some categories, things like education, rehabilitation, job training, and then we kind of scoured the country and who we knew um, to find farms that hit those categories. Uh, and obviously we knew from the beginning we'd never be able to, to to talk about all the farms around the country, so we had to really narrow down to, to what we came up with a dozen and uh, and then we got a, and then we got a book deal out of it and and so that's kind of started the ball rolling, and we found a bus because we we knew we needed to travel and actually see and visit these these farms, and uh, we wanted to do it in, in a, some sort of style that matched our, our mission with telling the story of the farm. So we found a an old school bus that ran on veggie grease and, uh, and it slept three, so we could all. It was actually another videographer and uh, and the photographer Michael. And I traveled around to uh, photograph and c- collect the stories from all, from those farms we'd selected.
0: Well, and it's funny the video that's on your website, um, and I'll give you a chance to let our listeners know what the URL for that is. It's kind of funny because there were some uh, some technical difficulties with that bus, weren't there? You guys, it wasn't like an easy breezy trip.
3: <laughs> no, it was not. There's there's a lot of emotion and uh, and strife.
0: Involved, yeah. but it made
3: it an adventure, really, and, and that kind of added. I think it, it just went. It was very appropriate for what we were doing, so it was <laughs> good to be kind of. It was it was a grassroots bus tour, just like these farms are grassroots farm yeah, projects.
0: I, <laughs> I love it. What's the uh, before we go into the next uh, segment? What's the um, what's the URL for your book for people who want to take a look at that video and also find out more about the book?
3: It's breakingthroughconcrete.com
0: that's pretty easy i'm wondering when you guys visited these various farms did you find exactly what you thought you would or were there anything any items or um you know challenges or anything that surprised you when you got there and you saw what they were doing
2: well i think
3: the biggest surprise is more on a on a a macro level and it was just the. variety of approaches that we were seeing. I mean we knew again we picked those on categories because we were trying to tell the, the diff, diverse story of urban farms but even even so even though we expected that going in it was amazing to see how each farm you'd go to was different. They, they were not they, there's no universal rule book to how to run an urban farm and so the, the way that these, the, the visionaries behind each of these farms has, has adapted those projects to, to fit within their community and the needs of the community. Uh, was really cool and inspiring. Um, and, and not only the needs of the community, but also how, you know, they have to make some money. And so they're, they're kind of, they're very nimble in terms of, of a, adapting to the market around them. And, uh, and that was really cool. Cause you, you could expect, I think a lot of people might expect to go around and see urban farms around the country and they would just see things being, vegetables grown in a city. But it, it's just so much more, uh, diverse than that.
0: Mm hmm. Well, we've had the folks from Grow NYC um, on the show before, and they've been going for about 40 years. That's a nonprofit organization in New York City that is partly funded by the governor's, I mean, the uh, mayor's office um, and also through private donations. And they've been doing this sort of thing for, for quite some time. But even as they move from borough to borough within the city itself, the model is a little bit different. So, um, so, you know, I think that's really one of the strengths of what you guys documented was the shared vitality and enthusiasm for urban farming, but like you said, the nimbleness of the people who are doing it to adapt to their situations. Edwin, I would love for you to talk about the definition of an urban farm that you included in the introduction to the book because sometimes – you know, it, the definition of urban farming can get a little nebulous, a little bit tough to nail down. I like the way that you put it, so I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about that.
2: Well, super. The, um, I mean, it's a, kind of a funny story in terms of, of trying to come up with a definition of urban farming. As David and I were uh, launching in this endeavor to write a book about urban farming, it became pretty obvious that we needed to have some agreed-upon, you know, even just basic definition of what an urban farm was. Um, And it's something I've been grappling with for a number of years. I I took a class in college back in the early 90s at the University of Oregon on urban farming, and so literally for 15 years I've been kind of struggling with what is an urban farm. And what I found running an urban farm in Birmingham at Jones Valley Urban Farm was, you know, there was just this basic misunderstanding across the board from the general public about what urban agriculture urban farming was. So I tried to, as we were writing the book and as we were doing the research for the book, really pay attention to what people were saying was an urban farm. In fact, I tried to include a question for each one of the the visionaries and the owners and the, um, the, the practitioners of each farm about what their idea was, and We'd actually thought about including those in the book. We didn't include that specific verbiage maybe for another time, but the definitions that we came away from with just those 12 examples were as diverse as you could possibly imagine. I mean, um, it was actually a very challenging concept to come up with an urban farm. To give you sort of an example, one thing I kept coming back to in terms of some of the definitions I heard is, how would you not include, say, Home Depot's nursery department Growing plants for sale <laughs> as an urban farm. Obviously, mm. I don't think anybody that's in the urban agriculture world would would include a Home Depot's nursery department as an urban farm. But no. <laughs> by the definitions that we kept coming back to, people growing food, people selling plants, etc., the Home Depots of the world sort of still got lumped into it. So I tried to come up with a definition that would pretty clearly demarcate um, that difference in terms of what I saw people actually doing in in the urban agriculture world. So this idea that an intentional effort by an individual or community to grow its capacity for self-sufficiency and well-being through the cultivation of plants and or animals sort of incorporated the the soul, if you will, of what urban agriculture is and at the same time um, to some degree excluded things that may have been lumped into that. But I felt like including the word intentional was very important. It was something that a lot of folks that we interviewed mentioned time and time again, this idea that that we are trying to make our food system better. We're trying to make our communities better. Um, and so I really felt like that was an important word that I hadn't seen included in other definitions of urban agriculture. Uh, and then they also I think it's important to notice um, in that definition there's this idea of self-sufficiency and well-being, that, again, it's intentional effort to make your community better, um, then it also includes this idea of plants and or animals it 's not just food while the vast majority of urban farms are centered around food production, most of them also produce things like flowers and herbs, um some non edibles, and then some of them even uh, make a fair amount of money selling ornamental plants. So mm-hmm. um, we felt like the definition was broad enough that it included the things that needed to be included, but specific enough where um, you know the general public could get a good idea of of what the important issues were. In urban agriculture,
0: mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's funny that word "intentional" was the the catch word that really popped out at me when I was reading that definition as well. And I like that um, intentional. You know, I mean, it's it's very thoughtful. It's very um, spirited. I like I like that definition. Um, you know, a lot of folks I think are intimidated somewhat by. The I hate to say politics, but the policies around urban farming, and you address um, some of the challenges that would-be urban farmers might face in terms of city agricultural zoning, and you also give some strategies to overcome those obstacles. I'd love for you guys to talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, it's a great story. I mean, really, a whole book could be written about just that very thought Um, And to give a little bit of background, um, you know, up until probably the 50s and the 60s in America, urban agriculture was not really its own category. People just simply grew plants and had animals in their backyards or on farms that were perhaps in or close to a city, and there wasn't much of an issue. Um, It wasn't really until there was a fairly intentional effort uh, by municipalities to, to some degree, create a safer food system and and a safer water system that the zoning became... Uh, fairly stringent to separate specifically animal manure from our environment. And so there was a, a real strong push, uh, say, 50, 60 years ago to create stringent zoning that was really intended to just make our community safer. What that did, unfortunately, was it, it excluded a lot of different kinds of activities that most people would consider to be not just safe but also beneficial. So we find ourselves in this current day and age with very strong zoning that separates our food system from where we live. Basically, we have just strong lines of, of differentiation between home, work, farm. Um, and what we're seeing now in this movement is that people don't want to be separated from their food system. They recognize that there's so many um, positives to creating a tighter-knit food system that includes animal production and vegetable production and sale of those items in communities. So what we have now really is is just a tidal wave of activity across the country in terms of municipalities and and different uh, political organizations switching and changing the zoning to make it easier for people to grow food in their backyards or on vacant properties and to sell those items to have animals included in um, any kind of uh, urban agriculture setting. It's really funny that, you know, even just in the year that it's taken for us to publish this book, I could include probably 20 more examples of municipalities that have enacted some really positive zoning that encourages and supports urban agriculture. Essentially what's going to happen, I think, in probably the next five to ten years is every single municipality throughout our country will have an urban agriculture zoning code. So there'll be specific language in every single municipality's zoning books that encourage, not just legalize, but encourage urban agriculture, and that's an important difference. Um, mm-hmm. Just to say that something's legal is great, but as you touched on, there is this sort of fear and this misunderstanding in the broad general public mm-hmm. about urban agriculture. What places like Cleveland, uh, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Seattle are all doing is not just saying, yes, you can have an urban farm in our city, but they're creating incentives and opportunities to make sure that people see not only is it legal, we want you to do that. And so I'd say, you know, in a very short time period, it'll be very common um, for most zoning uh, zoning codes to include urban agriculture and for um, a broader understanding across our community that it's a positive thing and that we should be supporting it as much as possible.
0: I think that's really encouraging. And, of course, the more cities that do that, the more templates will be available for other cities to look at what they're doing and to replicate those efforts. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have lots more with David and Edwin talking about this urban farm revival. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: News, News. Opinion. News. Opinion. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights.
2: Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic.
1: Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, welcome. Uh, We are talking with David Hansen and Edwin Marty this morning, and they are the co-authors of a brand new book called Breaking Through Concrete, Building an Urban Farm Revival, and I Love this book! I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautifully written. The pictures are amazing. Uh, the tips are so spot on. I mean, it answered every question that I had about urban farming. I really highly recommend it. You can check it out at breakingthroughconcrete.com. They've got a really fun promotional video, and it, it's just a, it's a great website. It's a great book, and I hope that all our listeners will check it out. Well, guys, I loved all twelve projects that you talked about in your book. But if, besides Edwin's project, uh, project project which we're gonna get to, the Jones Valley Urban Farm, which I absolutely love. I also was really drawn to the story of Fairview Gardens and the Center for Urban Agriculture in Santa Barbara, California. And I would love for you guys to talk about that project and some of the ways that this particular urban farm benefits the community around it.
2: Well, the, the um, Fairview Gardens is a really special place for a lot of different reasons, and, and um, it actually it serves a very good role in our book because it's a very different example than many of the other urban farms. In fact, I think all of the other urban farms are uh, recovered properties turned into farms. Uh, Fairview Gardens is actually the only that I that I can remember is the only farm that we profile that was actually a farm in existence, and the city basically caught up with the farm. There's a fantastic picture in uh, on the website for uh, Fairview Gardens that shows what, uh, from an aerial point of view, what the farm looked like 50 years ago and what it looks like today. Basically, Fairview Gardens is the last 15, 20 acres of farmland in the Goleta Valley, which is where Santa Barbara sits. So really, Fairview Gardens is a um, is a land preservation urban farm more than the other examples, which are um, sort of restoration farms. What also makes this farm so special is it shows to the community that the Valley of Galita is one of the the most prolific, healthiest places to grow food probably in the entire country. Um, And it sort of provides almost a place marker to us as we develop our cities to remind us that You know, putting concrete down and creating suburbs is important for a lot of different reasons, but if we're paving over the land that's going to provide us with the capacity to produce our own food, then we, you know, just need to be very cautious and careful and perhaps make spaces and create those opportunities to preserve that great farmland, not just for our food, but also for our children so that everyone in our community can understand where their food comes from and have that direct connection back to the earth. But Fairview is really just... It's one of the prettiest places I've ever been. It's uh, just an idyllic farm covered with avocado trees and peach trees, hundreds of chickens running around, beautiful Mm. lush soil, just producing incredible food. Um, And it's just a wonderful example of how important it is to preserve our existing assets in our communities.
0: What I would love to see, and I actually, a couple of years ago, I had a bright young intern who was um, an urban planning student at USC. I would love to see uh, either a real field trip or a a virtual field trip for urban planners, young kids who are studying urban planning, to see this example of the integration of of city and farm, um, to think about how that, you know, in the future as they develop their careers as urban planners, to to. Think about this as they create space um, for living in cities. I just think the message of what this project and some of the others that you have in your book sends to the young urban planners and and even architects um, of the 21st century is is a really powerful lesson.
2: But it was great <laughs> to hear you say that because that, that was certainly one of our intentions for writing this book was to give mm-hmm. folks just like that a very visual and verbal documentation of the things that are, are happening around the country so that hopefully you know, as those new urban planners and, and architects and landscape architects come online, they'll see that there's such good opportunities to integrate all of the different components to a community and not lose that vitality of actual uh, agrarian rural life. Mm-hmm.
0: It kind of goes to even the larger issue that a lot of people are talking about in other aspects of, of regional and governmental planning. You know, instead of looking at everything in silos, like just energy, just water, just, you know, food, um, as, as a systems approach and, and looking at things systematically. I mean, this is uh, urban farms kind of create a, a visual representation of that kind of thinking, bringing the food to the city. It, it only makes sense instead of having a separate agricultural area that's far removed from the, the city and the living and the, the business centers. I, I really love it. One of the things that you guys mentioned in your book that honestly I hadn't heard of until I read your book was Backyard Bounty. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners about this organization and what they do.
2: Right, Backyard Bounty is a nonprofit in Santa Barbara, which is in the Goleta Valley where Fairview Gardens is. It uh, was started a number of years ago recognizing that fruit production is so prolific in that particular part of the country. Everybody's got an avocado tree or a peach tree in their backyard. But for the vast majority of times, most homeowners let that fruit fall on the ground and don't maybe utilize 100%, maybe even not even 50% of the actual fruit that's fallen. So this nonprofit developed as a way to gather that Delicious, often organically grown fruit, and get it to people that actually need it. So it's more or less a a food recovery organization to get existing fruit falling from trees into food banks throughout, really throughout all of Southern California. And it's just one of those things where once you see it, you're like, wow, that is the most logical, completely just perfect. Uh, use of a nonprofit. it's just all these assets basically falling to the ground not being utilized there's hungry people in the community you connect the dots and all of a sudden you have this incredible asset for your whole community
0: well there is such a duh factor to it like exactly why did we ever waste this you know why didn't we think of this before but it's it's a great movement and gosh i mean there's just so many ways that this same kind of notion could be used all over the country, all over the world. I, I really like yeah. what Backyard Bounty is doing.
2: Well, the, the Backyard Bounty has sort of led to a couple of other new developments. Uh, one of which is an edible urban park, and um, we didn't touch on this in the book. Well, I think we did actually mention a uh, bit. Yeah, an example in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, they have an example of an edible park. You think about you know the amount of money that we spend on planting ornamental trees, especially in urban parks. Why not plant Edible trees and have yeah. you know an actual system for people to come out and harvest that fruit. Um, I mean, literally, you know, we have these ornamental cherry trees all over our capital. Wouldn't it be an amazing example if instead of having ornamental cherries, we actually had fruit-bearing cherries? Um, again, if we have hungry people in our community, and every single community in the entire country has you know a food insecure community, it just seems like a logical fit.
0: Well, and, you know, when you look at cities like Chicago, you know, they have been hit so hard by urban heat waves, Um, you know, the heat island effect when we've had uh, very hot summer spells, and they're looking to do a lot to green their city, to lower their urban heat island, you know, temperature. Why not make that greenery something that's edible? I mean, it's just, I love exactly what you said. So simple yet so profound, connecting the dots. We know, obviously, a lot of people are thinking, I'd love to do this. Urban farming sounds cool, but it takes some startup cash. And you guys give some really solid strategies for coming up with the initial funding to start an urban farm. I'd love for you guys to talk about that. And I know, Edwin, you've had to do that yourself with the Jones Valley Urban Farm. But talk about some of the strategies you outline in the book.
2: Well, it's um, it's an interesting question. It's in traditional agriculture, if somebody wanted to start a farm, they would take their land and that's sort of where it all begins. And go to the bank and say, "I want to you know leverage my land to get startup capital to start a farm." And that's how you know probably ninety five percent of all farms in history were started was basically taking land and getting somebody to lend you some money with the land as the collateral. An urban farm sort of doesn't have the opportunity often to use that same traditional model as um, you know normal agriculture traditional agriculture would. Very few urban farmers own land. I think the statistics are, are pretty unbelievable. I think 90% of all urban farms are either on rented or borrowed land. So there's not that opportunity to leverage property to get startup capital. So um, the vast majority of farms that I've seen have been very creative in finding ways to get startup capital. Um you know, a great example is a uh, profile in the book with a Prairie Crossings community outside of Chicago. It's a new urbanist community, um, very intentional effort to to create a, a more walkable, livable community. And what they did is they were selling the houses uh, for Prairie Crossings. They took a percentage of each one of the home sales and put that towards the startup capital of an urban farm that would then supply the community with food. It's an incredible example. If you think about all the number of suburban housing communities that have been started, each one of those would have the opportunity to divert even you know half of a percent of the home sale towards an urban farm that could then go back to supplying that community with food. It's a wonderful example. Another example that we actually didn't get to touch on in the book, that's become much, much more popular in the last year, is a, a, an organization called Kickstarter. And I think yes. it's a really, really good fit for urban farms. It's um, an idea where if you have an idea, put up uh, information on a Kickstarter website and find people in your community or across the country that are interested in supporting it. It's becoming a very common way to start up an urban farm. It doesn't cost any money to really get it started. And it's a great way to get that initial capital so that you can um, you know, try to at least have the money to get the basic supplies that you need for an urban farm. One of the challenges that I saw with urban farming is because startup capital is so often difficult to get, um, the scale of an urban farm is often a difficult thing to get to. People start on a very, very small scale using the resources that they had, for instance, at Jones Valley. I mean, literally, we had just a couple thousand dollars that we'd had from some landscaping jobs. The 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 ability to get that, into an operation and get a farm up to scale where it can actually start making money is very difficult. So the last thought that I would have is the dream for this book was to some degree to legitimize urban agriculture as an industry, to encourage the existing lending infrastructure to look at urban agriculture as a viable investment opportunity. Maybe not quite as viable as some of the other investments out there, but um, the idea that A traditional bank would look at an urban farm as a a viable, you know, critical component to the success of a community and perhaps lend it money so that it could get started quicker and get up to scale where it could actually be starting to make money. We're hoping that Breaking Through Concrete, you know, gets into those audiences where, where a banker might read this book and say, wow, okay, this is actually a great opportunity to invest in our community and give something an opportunity to be successful.
0: That is a very interesting concept. Um, I want to I want to mull on that because I, I think I have some connections for you there. Well, we've got to take a quick quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with David Hansen and Edward Marty. Um, they are authors of a brand-new book that I have just fallen in love with. It's called Breaking Through Concrete, um, and I, I highly recommend it. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in today. If you're just joining us, we have David Hansen and Edwin Marty, co-authors of a new book called Breaking Through Concrete. It's all about building an urban farm revival, and this book is just phenomenal. You've got to check out their website, because besides the book, they've got some pictures, they've got some videos that are really cool to look at. So check out their website at breakingthroughconcrete.com. You know, Edward, uh, Edwin, I'm sorry, you've got a project that I really am excited about, the Jones Valley Urban Farm. And one of the things that I love about what you've done there um, is that you've incorporated some educational programs um, into the farm and into the project. And I'd love for you to talk about that for us.
2: Well, really, the, um, honestly, the, the whole intention of starting Jones Valley Urban Farm was to create a platform for education. So really the farm is to some degree a living classroom. That's kind of a simple way to think about it. Um, We wanted to create opportunities for inner-city kids to see where their food was coming from, um, to help produce that food, to help us prepare that food, to eat that food, to really just integrate um, every aspect of um, a child's life into a farm. So Jones Valley is really the, the initial concept was that living classroom. And that led to a number of wonderful programs that we started over the last 10 years. Uh, the main program we developed is called Seed to Plate. It's a three-part cooking, gardening, nutrition, education field trip. So uh, local elementary schools come out to the farm for a couple hours. They walk through our children's garden. Uh, they help us plant things. They help us harvest whatever's ready uh, to be harvested on the farm. And then we walk over to a a local YMCA and use their kitchen to prepare that food into a healthy snack or a healthy lunch and talk about the difference in the nutritional values of the food that we've just harvested and prepared versus perhaps a prepared uh, meal or a fast food meal. So really trying to make sure the kids understand that fresh locally produced food that you eat in season is going to be the best possible food for you and it's going to actually taste much better. So the real goal for Jones Valley was to get kids excited about the taste of fresh, healthy food and how that can be a, an integral part of their life as they move forward.
0: Do you see them looking at um, food production or careers in agriculture any differently? Because that's been something that's, uh, you know, been a huge shift in our economy over the past few decades is, you know, fewer and fewer people choosing to become farmers or be involved in food production.
3: Absolutely. I think that, yeah, I was going to say, I think that... Um, that, that that's been an, another one of the surprises you asked about earlier that we saw along the trip uh, is that there there is this new kind of energy toward um, an, an entrepreneurial look at, at farms and, and it's not you know these urban farms is where kind of the young energy seems to be looking for right now because they aren't they are kind of leaving the the heartland and the large farm life uh, but we saw in the cities that uh, there's this really encouraging. A level of energy from young, entrepreneurially spirited, uh, you you know, people in their 20s and 30s who who see this as obviously some a way to give back and and kind of a, a do good to type of occupation, but beyond that, as something that they can they can make a career out of, and and we're seeing people. Edwin is a great example. He he worked at the he apprenticed it in Santa Cruz, and then. Went on to obviously start his own farm, and a number of people have done that out of Santa Cruz and out of other farms, where they'll they'll be interns or apprentices and do training programs there, and then go on and, and and start their own farms. And so they've learned the business practice behind it. So I think that these urban farms are kind of really becoming great models for for social entrepreneurs who want to hit that with you know what kind of the new buzz term of the triple bottom line, which is um, kind of satisfying the economic, the environmental, and the social. Uh, bottom lines uh, of a business versus just trying to go after the money or just being the do good nonprofit. So uh, that's I think that's really cool to see the urban farms
2: attracting those young people.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I think, think that is too.
2: So you know, oh, uh, when you look at sort of the average um, uh, person that gets into agriculture, urban agriculture has just brought in an entirely different demographic to the whole food system. Um, job market, I mean, it's just it's an explosion of interest, you know, I mean, statistics for rural agriculture continue to to go down, the traditional farmers are getting older, there's not new uh, people interested in getting back onto those properties, but urban agriculture reverses that trend completely, Um, and it brings in a very different person than would normally be involved in agriculture. At Jones Valley Urban Farm, we provided a, um, a summer internship program for a local high school. And these students that were, you know, most of them had never seen a farm before, didn't really understand food at all. All of a sudden, after one summer of working on our farm, they're interested in perhaps pursuing a career in agriculture. They go to school and they study sustainable food systems or agroecology or one of these things. And then, um, you know, just like David touched on, they go and, and hopefully start their own projects.
0: Well, and this has happened even in my own family, um, my daughter is in college now. She's studying ag business. She's been a suburban kid her whole life, and in fact, she and I were having one of our riveting discussions about what she's learning about this week that relates to something that was in your book. We were talking about soil, and I know you're probably thinking, "Wow, you and your daughter really have interesting <laughs> conversations." But it's fascinating to us that you know it's not just dirt. I mean, when you're in the suburbs, I mean, you you don't even think about soil. But she was just learning in one of her classes that hey, once the soil soil is wrecked, you can't create new, rich soil that, you know, can sustain life. I mean, if you completely deplete the nutrients and all the things, you know, the the soil needs to sustain life, you know, you've created a dust bowl. And you have a section in your book about rehabilitating contaminated soil. And of course, in urban settings, there's a lot of brownfield and a lot of contaminated soil, and I'd love for you to touch on that issue, because that's probably a concern for a lot of urban farmers.
2: Well, and it's, Certainly, it's an issue that they should be concerned about. It's, um, it's, it's uh, critically important, and I can't stress this enough, for anybody interested in urban agriculture that, that gets access to a piece of property to test their soil first and foremost before doing anything else. Uh, the history of, of what's happened on a piece of property can you know, radically change the the opportunities to use that for a food production site, um, old cars parked on a lot, dripping oil, dripping transmission fluid, etc., can contaminate a tiny amount of oil can contaminate a fairly significant amount of soil. Um, and lead paint off of an old house can get into soil and cause some real issues. So, highly recommend testing your soil um, before jumping in. If you do find contaminated soil, though, the opportunities for projects are endless. So it's it's not really a question of you shouldn't use a piece of property. If it is contaminated, you'll just need to approach things a little bit differently. For example, the project I'm actually working on currently in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Hampstead Institute, took a piece of property along the riverfront in Montgomery that had formerly had a railroad switching station on it. Uh, The soil was contaminated, so we actually got an EPA grant to remediate the soil. We scraped off some of the soil and then we brought in rubber mats, we put down the mats, and we built raised beds on top of the rubber mats. We brought in composted topsoil, filled those raised beds up, and now we're growing the most delicious, beautiful plants on top of, a, uh, of what was formerly a, a contaminated site. So there's not it's not really that you can't use those sites, it's just that you need to know and then decide how to move forward. The other option that I see happening around the country is to grow non-edible things like sunflowers, um, those kind of just beautiful cut flowers or ornamentals can be used as a, a, a very lucrative crop for an urban farm that's using some contaminated soil.
0: Well, and you know, for those of our listeners who are kind of landlocked and maybe they just, there's just no land for them to even consider for an urban farm project, you also talk about rooftop gardens, and I'd love for you to touch on that as well.
3: Yeah, r- rooftops are uh, similar to what Edwin was just talking about with the, with raised beds. And it's basically, the, I mean, a rooftop is essentially a raised bed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so they can be. I think the most intimidating thing about rooftops is, is getting soil up there, obviously, and uh, and the cost. And uh, while the costs are, are higher than obviously building a raised bed on the ground, um, mm-hmm. there's there's a there's kind of a basic system of layering layering and membranes that need to go onto the roof uh but in the, over the long term it's been proven that that green roofs whether you're growing ornamentals or or just flowers or or food um, are, are actually save money over the long run um, the you know a, a waterproofing membrane of a roof must be replaced on average 15 to 20 years uh, due to exposure to uv rays so when you put a green roof on there it's been proven to expand the life extend the life for um, up to four times that amount uh, and, and obviously, at the same time, you're, you're retaining your heat more. So there's all these auxiliary benefits financially to, to uh, putting a green roof and installing a green roof. And then the you know the the cream of the crop there obviously is growing good food that you can eat off the top of your house. So whether yeah whether it's a residential um, project or you we're seeing some large large scale projects going in in cities like New, or- New York. Um, where we're talking like 40,000 square feet of, of growing space on roofs and doing it on a, on a commercial level. So that whole wide range, it, it, it is very viable, and, and uh, it's just a matter of kind of sucking it up and putting that money in it first and then knowing it's going to come back to you.
0: Where does the money generally come from? Like if you're talking about, I know that Chicago... Is putting in a lot of green roofs too? I keep reading about you know all the things that they're doing there. Is that a government subsidized thing generally, or is that something that the residents of an apartment building all chip in for? What have you seen in terms of the revenue uh, generation for projects like that? Typically,
3: I'm not I'm not sure if it, in Chicago if it actually is is subsidized. I'm su- I would assume there's some incentive there, but but, but uh, you know moving forward, I think that there will be uh a lot of incentive for cities to to provide that those sort of um the support financial support because over the in the big picture of a city you're you're saving on stormwater runoff um the the urban heat island effect that you talked about is is greatly reduced when you when you have roofs absorbing that heat um more than the the pavement just reflecting it so uh i think there's a lot of motive there should be a lot of motivation behind cities to uh to to encourage their residents and their companies to to
2: do green roofs I think the other exciting part of a green roof uh, future is this idea of stormwater taxation. And cities are looking very carefully at taxing uh, business owners or building owners, I should say, for the amount of water that comes off of their buildings. And that's actually being implemented in certain places almost on a pilot basis right now. And it's looking like that will probably be a, a much broader concept moving forward. So you can imagine... If a building owner has to look at paying a a tax for the amount of water that comes off the roof versus investing in a rooftop farm or garden or even just, you know, any kind of greening on a roof to offset that, uh, all of a sudden the incentivization goes through the roof, no pun intended. (laughs) um, And um, we'll see, I think, an explosion in the number of green roof and green roof farms.
0: Very interesting. I I think you're right. And it's beautiful. It's also beautiful. I mean, it really does change the landscape. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's more with David and Edwin. And so, folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%?
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. So glad that our guests could join us, David Hansen and Edwin Marty, co-authors of a new book, Breaking Through Concrete, Building an Urban Farm Revival. You can check out their website, get a hold of their book, uh, see some cool pictures and videos on their website at breakingthroughconcrete.com. Check it out. Well, you know, one of the things that I've been hearing more and more about, and really I think that the First Lady, Michelle Obama, has really helped to bring to the nation's attention, is this issue of food deserts where people in in metropolitan areas um, just don't have access to some of the fresh fruits and vegetables and and things that people in suburbs and, and rural areas have. And I'd love for you guys to talk about how, urban farms could help address this growing problem that we're seeing in the inner cities? Well,
2: I think the the urban farm really is the, the ultimate answer to a food desert issue. And You take every single food desert community that I'm aware of has a fair amount of vacant property. You often couple that with higher unemployment rates and then you couple that with a lack of access to fresh healthy food and you, you stick all those liabilities together and you actually create an amazing opportunity for urban farming. So The idea that you could have a community garden, obviously, as a direct mechanism for converting vacant properties into a place where people can grow their own food, wonderful example. But I think the future, really, and we touch on this in our book some, is this idea that a food desert community can be incentivized to create for-profit urban farms where literally the food for your community is being produced in your community. One of the examples that I love from our book is actually in, in New Orleans uh, with the Vietnamese immigrant community, uh, mm-hmm. converting vacant properties along levees, along the, the vacant properties throughout their community into for-profit urban farms, selling that food directly back to their neighbors and creating really almost a circular insular food system. Instead of purchasing food from around the country or even around the world, in your own backyard or on the vacant property surrounding you, there's opportunities to produce food that perhaps your neighbors would be interested in eating. That food is going to obviously have a very insignificant environmental impact because it's not being transported. And then the freshness and healthiness of the food is going to be incredible. Food that doesn't sit around, it's not you know shipped across the country, is going to obviously have lots more nutrients, it's going to taste better, and you're going to be supporting your own community by keeping that money inside your community instead of sending it off to to other countries or other parts of the country.
0: Well, and that particular project in your book uh, just spoke volumes about how to create an economically viable situation in an urban farm where it doesn't require an infusion of grant money or uh, public subsidization over and over again year after year. I mean, it really does sustain itself. That's the definition of sustainability in many Absolutely. regards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, your project was supported in large part by an organization called Why Hunger, and I'm inspired by what they're doing. Please talk about that organization and how their support helped to enable your book. Well,
3: why, yeah, Why Hunger is a, is a, is a nonprofit that's been uh, operating out of New York since 1975. It was started by the musician Harry Chapin, and and they've been really been digging into figuring out solutions to hunger uh, in uh, globally but now they're really more a lot more domestic now and uh and they and they're really grounded in grassroots solutions uh so kind of they help partner together uh community organizations and upstart initiatives that are that are working on very you know local levels to uh to solve a lot of it having to do with solving problems related to food deserts that we just talked about um, so we actually just the stars aligned basically. Edwin ran into one of their representatives, Brooke Smith, at a, at a conference just as we were kind of getting the ball rolling for our uh, book, for our tour of the farms. And we were needing some money to support that. And so, uh, Why Hunger, it, it just coincided a lot with their, with what they're doing and stories they want to tell. And so we kind of, we, they, they ended up having, being able to f- support us on that, on the, on the production tour. And uh... and we were able to give them some material and cover some of the stories they needed to cover while we were out there. Um, so it, it's it's a great partnership, and and they're doing some of the best work around in the country on, on this food desert stuff. And it, and again, it's not splashy and, and newsy and on the front pages. It's it's the stuff down in you know southeastern Arizona and and the Mississippi Delta. In places that are way, way off the radar, um, but where people, individuals, and small organizations are are really fired up to to figure out ways to to not only grow food locally and and increase access to fresh food, but to teach people how to cook that food and 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 work with existing organizations like food banks and and uh, and, and distributing that into schools and and into. Um, into the places where it needs to it needs to reach people who, who need it and so it's not just this kind of whole foods crowd but getting really down into the the, the broad spectrum
2: of of access to food.
0: I think that's just incredibly noble. Go ahead, Edmund. Well,
2: I was going to say one of the things that I love most about what why hunger does also and, and some of the things that we touched on in our book is um, sort of in the empowerment of a community through urban agriculture and that's certainly one of the ten- hunger um, getting, people to decide how they want their communities to function, to embrace their own power in deciding what kind of food they want to have in their community, and then coming up with solutions um, that are generated out of their own community as opposed to being imposed upon um, by, say, a government organization or other larger organizations deciding what is best for them. It's um, An important part of every urban farm that we saw was that sense of self-empowerment um, literally, you know, turning turning nothing into something using urban agriculture as a, as a leveraging tool. It's just a fantastic, empowering perspective that we hope just sweeps the country in the coming decades.
0: Well, you know, something that I think is a big issue for a lot of people, even those who can never imagine themselves actually growing food um, for whatever reason. I think a lot of people are concerned about food safety. I mean, when you read about or hear about like listeria outbreaks and things like that, um, that's something that affects all of us. It's a scary situation. How do you see urban farms addressing this very ubiquitous concern that Americans have over food safety?
2: But it's such an important issue, and it's it's one that, in my opinion, has really been co-opted, um, unfortunately, by larger agricultural industries. There's been this attempt in America to conglomerate agriculture and to, you know, this dream that eventually there would be maybe one farm per state with one farmer per state growing everything that the people need. And, you know, really from a food safety point of view, nothing could be farther from the solution than this conglomerative idea. What I see in agriculture across America is that an urban farm represents the absolute best possible way to have a safe food system. Small farms that grow food directly for consumers, you know where your food comes from because you bought it directly from the farmer that lives down the street from you. If there's an issue with your food, you know what the problem is because you know the farmer. Um, That, for me, is the ultimate food safety. We don't need this uh, hyper-regulatory system to come in and try to solve the problem through technology. We we already have the answer. It's consumers buying directly from their farmers and from their producers, or even better yet, growing your own food using safe, sustainable farming systems. The technology is already all there in terms of making sure that our food system can be safe through good composting processes to provide the fertility for our soil, good crop rotation systems, sensible, safe systems for rotating animals through a system. All those pieces are all in place. We just simply have to embrace this idea that instead of trying to have fewer, larger farms, perhaps we have a lot more local farms that are supplying each community with their own food. That, for me, is the ultimate example uh, or ideal for a safe food system.
0: Mm -hmm. David, did you want to add anything to that?
2: No, uh, no, I agree. It's just... um,
3: yeah, they just, uh, it's just it's inspiring to see it all starting in these like in the city. It's not inspiring and kind of counterintuitive, I think, to see it starting in the city. These solutions to food safety and security, um, but I think that uh, like we talked about earlier, that's just where kind of the youth and, the, and not necessarily the youth, but the, a lot of the energy is. So it'll be really uh, we're, we're really hopeful to see it move out kind of into the larger acreage of our of our country where we can grow on a, on a larger scale.
0: Well, and let's face it, I mean, I know that a lot of cities are looking at ways to to um, you know create some infill development they don't like vacant lots there's a lot of problems that go along with that, and maybe uh, this will be the the sought-after solution to healthy things and sustainable things to put into that infill area. Um, Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. It was just such a pleasure having you. I strongly recommend that all of my listeners get out there on the website, breakingthroughconcrete.com. Check out the book. Check out their work. And uh, consider becoming an advocate for urban farms in your area. Believe me, uh, the the harvest that you reap is not just... The tasty food, but so much more, so many more benefits to your community. Well, folks, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.